thank you all so much for um, joining us. This, um, this evening's conversation uh, between Tim and myself is very much continuing on. And I think probably taking it, I suspect, and you would expect from the man himself, uh, a little further uh, than where we have gone to date. And um, for those of us who've been enjoying this series as it's developed, uh, the theme has very much been about active environmentalism, what we can do uh, from an individual point of view. Um, and I think one of the themes that's been coming through this, if you like, is the sort of, I suppose, bifold thing of push-pull of sort of, you know, nature's requirements and humanity's requirements and how those two elements have not always seen eye to eye. Uh, and there's going to be, has been a bit of a, a give on that. Probably the most direct uh, um, conversation I think we've had so far actually has been how we can bring money into this uh, conversation um, and how that and we can finance uh, changes in the environment. But um, so Tim, you really, I think, exemplify uh, the, I suppose, the sort of daring do, the nature, the, the sort of spirit of, or, of um, exploration of daring to think differently. Um, and that started with you, most famously with the Eden Project. Um, and when I started this series, Kurt Jackson, who's our, our great mutual buddy, said, well, there's really only one man in town, uh, uh, but prepare yourself, uh, have a chat with, uh, with him and see, and see where you go. So um, the title of our talk was really a question about I suppose what we think is good in conservation and what we'd like to get out of tonight, I think, is to understand probably what we're doing right uh, in your views and what we're doing wrong and what we could do better. And perhaps if I could ask you to just help us understand a bit about the environmental challenges that we face as, as you see it. So, Tim, thank you for joining us this evening very much and coming on. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, well, uh, I, it's a very difficult subject to start talking about uh, in an isolated way, in the sense that uh, let's talk about conservation. I, I'll, I'll start by saying that um, about 36 hours ago, the results of a survey uh, conducted by Avars came in in Europe, uh, well, including Britain, still in Europe in terms of the survey. Um, and the survey asked people about the environment and how they saw coming out of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And of 40,000 people, there was a very unusual finding. Most people hate the word, the environment. Most people distrust the word sustainability. Mm -hmm. And there's an enormous hunger to get back to an understanding of nature. Now, that is a really profound, for those of us, and many on this uh, Zoom uh, will be lovers of words. Um, and it's quite interesting how, how much language skews things and you define people by language and it gets very politicized. And uh, the European contingent, they view the word environment and environmentalism as being associated with a political position. Um, they view sustainability in the same way. Um, and I think actually probably for many of us on this call, we probably have pretty uneasy feelings about sustainability as well, because it's been hijacked uh, by many people. And we spend a lot of time, don't we, talking about words which might have a, um, a, a different resonance. I mean, whether it be resilience or um, uh, durability, or I, I don't know quite what the right words are. Um, it's very interesting. Yeah. My, my friend Bill McDonough, who wrote a book that many of you will have read called Cradle to Cradle, and he's the, mm. the god of architectural um, specification, and he came to speak for us at the Royal Society last year. Mm. And uh, I won't dare mimic his um, Virginian drawl, but he looked out at the audience and with a very theatrical pause, he said, um, let me see. Uh, if I was to say to any of you in the audience that your relationship with your partner or wife or husband was sustainable, describe to me how excited you are. And I think, I think that is actually part of the problem. And he said something which I, 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 we may well like to discuss later, mm. which is why is it we have developed a culture here in the West where we praise people for doing less bad 
And if you think about it, that is actually what's happened. We're doing less bad and people are getting praised for doing less bad. And he thinks we need a culture of doing good. We work on a project in uh, Costa Rica, which uh, is very exciting. I, I, I was in London three years ago and I was giving a talk at something called Planet First, which is a, a, an organization that deals with kite marking good environmental behavior mm. of which we're patrons. And I was getting into a lift and this guy rammed his fingers into the lift doors and pulled it open. He said, I have to make a lift pitch to you. Um, <laughs> an elevator pitch and I said well you better make it quick because we're only on the first floor and he he got in and and he said my uh my best friend has just inherited a rainforest and he doesn't know what to do with it will you help and I said to him well you've certainly caught my attention um and the next thing I I knew was I ended up in Costa Rica going to see this project and it was probably the most inspirational project I've ever seen mm. uh, and it was inspirational for the following reason. 30 years ago, um, a guy, a Danish uh, multimillionaire was on holiday in Costa Rica and he came across this completely degraded farmland. For, uh, there were 42 acres, uh, 42 farms, and he bought all 42. He put a fence around them and he said, I want no humans in here until a rainforest has regrown. The birds will shit it back to life. <laughs> I arrived 30 years later uh, at a most extraordinary time because I arrived and I met the lad and his two brothers who'd inherited the estate from their the father who'd sadly died of a heart attack. And we were being taken to a village called Paquera, which is uh, the, the nearest town to the rainforest. And there was going to be a celebration because the boys had kept their father's promise, which was that uh, they were going to give the water rights to the village and water rights as anybody who's visited central and south america will know are very valuable things and so we arrived in this town of about eight thousand people um and the mayor made the best speech i have ever heard honestly uh, mm -hmm. and i wish it had been recorded he basically said 30 years ago there were murders in this town every year because for five to six months we were in complete drought we'd lost everything we hated each other and this rainforest has now grown to the point that there are four rivers flowing um, for 365 days a year coming out of the rainforest. And in the morning, when you get up and you look at the mountain, you can actually see the weather systems forming. Mm. Now, every year that rainforest has grown. And this year with us managing it, we, we put heat seeking cameras in the forest and uh, a jaguar and ocelot have returned for the first time. Um, which is astonishing considering what it looked like. But what is really amazing is the people. It's the human story of a bunch of people who had not realized how crucial the environment was to their well being, who now have formed their own voluntary fire brigades. They go and they help uh, 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 manage uh, the land adjacent to make sure that. Um, they're doing the very very best we've just persuaded i mean this last week we've persuaded hotel chocolat uh, to come and join us on the site to uh, to begin a very large um uh, agricultural project in the wilds a wild agricultural project because the key thing is to remember that rainforests are uh, uh, provide livelihoods for just under two billion people on earth so we mustn't romanticize them but how cool is it if you can restore them create livelihoods and then put back the biodiversity corridors which enable the creatures to um uh, to, to 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 actually travel across their normal territories i mean i didn't know i don't know how many people on this call knew but i didn't know that the natural the natural um uh, terrain of the jaguar ends in arizona did you know that yeah. i didn't know it's amazing but to see the speed with which nature has actually done the job uh, the other example that everybody here will be familiar with is, is, is Yellowstone Park with the introduction um, uh, of wolves. And the simple mechanism of having wolves in the park has meant that the deer that were going absolutely bonkers eating new shoots all the time, once they get scared of being eaten, they start to herd together and they do what in farming would be called mob grazing. But the result is Yellowstone has completely altered its shape and it, it's restoring itself. And one, yeah, I, this sounds like a criticism of middle-aged men. You will hear this 
a lot from me. I have realized as I, I'm now, obviously I'm post middle age now, but um, I have come to realize that, that we set far too much store by people who hold on to the old ways mm. and are too respectful. I mean, we've spent 40 years um, with conservation movements in Britain alone um, with a brilliant, a brilliantly wrong understanding of how nature itself works and how um, creatures in the wild travel and, and we built up reserves that should have had really long um, uh, passageways between them, linking them up. But instead we've had them isolated and the populations just don't have the resilience to be able to succeed. It's, it, it's like creating reservations for native peoples or whatever. You, it, it, it is a completely unnatural construct. What we should be looking at is ourselves living in nature um, in such a way that we can, um, we can farm, uh, we can farm and feed ourselves, but do so not at the expense uh, of all the other creatures that would live in those spaces. A lot of people, uh, especially accountants, they love, they love carbon because you can count it. And we have become pathetic in terms of our uh, dependence on carbon, which is what well, it's about 415 parts per million at the moment. And it's viewed as an enemy because most people don't study science. They see it, oh, carbon is the problem, see? Well, it isn't the bloody problem. The carbon, it, we're talking about fugitive carbon, carbon that has not been allowed to get back into the cycle. Mm. Uh, and that should tell most, in my view, right-thinking people who understand nature, that if you have a bunch of people telling you, you now need a technology in order to absorb carbon, to in order to put right what humans have done, that just feels wrong. I mean, it is wrong. Yeah. And the trouble with it is that, let's go back to my middle-aged man example and the problem the terrible trouble that happens especially in this country but it's the same all over europe when you become a member of what is called the establishment what happens is your common sense goes out the bloody window if i said to you do you think it is a good idea that we should have clean water i should think you might say yes that's a really sound idea if I say to you, do you think the soil, which although it is temporarily owned by one group of humans or another to speak the point, there are there should be rules of stewardship about that soil, which means that that soil is looked after. You'd probably say, yeah, I think that's a really sensible thing. And then if I said about air, do you think it should be uh, clean at all times? You'd say, yes, it is. So how come we've created a system of finance that we call it good business practice to not count those things on which life depends. Mm. It is just bonkers. And yet you say things like that and it's perceived to be a left-wing thing. Oh, you're anti-business, I'm a capitalist. Mm. But you know, what? you know what? I actually think there ought to be a crime of treason to the commons for people whose businesses depend on depleting the resources which should belong to all of us and future generations. And there are, there are methods of doing it. I'm sorry, I sound a bit like a ranty politician, but I don't want to be distracted by notions of how we can conserve things or preserve things. Basically, in a country for whom the word preservation makes you purr, it makes you purr because the past is always a better place. It was so wonderful in the past. The fact that almost everybody on this call would have been burnt at the stake, we completely forget. The past wasn't better. If you want me to prove it to you, I'll take you and see a dentist with the tools of 1600. Are you with me? We're also not living at a time. Because newspapers have a single phrase by which most of them live, which is, if it bleeds, it leads. Hmm. We have been so inculcated with the notion that the world is going to hell in a handcart. It does not need to go to hell in a handcart. If you want to get excited, Go and talk to an archaeologist who will tell you about the carbon content of soil in Roman days, around the year 400 AD, just before they left, is about double what it is today. Mm. That shows you the potential yeah. of restoring our farmland. There are enormous changes that we can make, um, but getting obsessed about single-use plastics and recycling is one thing and we don't we don't want to undo that but actually it's a bit like um worrying about credit cards um and the legality of the percentages charged on it without actually 
uh, deciding that we think the whole finance system is shot. We're distracted by trivia, mm. complete trivia. If I was allowed to change one thing in the whole planet, just one thing, it would be that, in my view, the most negligent profession on planet Earth, auditors, Mm -hmm. should be pleased mm -hmm. you can change almost everything with one change in the law and just follow me on this okay mm -hmm. we the citizens allow people to form limited liability companies mm -hmm. the people that are allowed to form these limited liability companies do so to protect them from liability for being over entrepreneurial or certain types of risks that aren't negligent Yep. If we said the price of you having a limited liability company is that you give the state one golden share and when your company is audited, the auditors will take account of every aspect of the common wealth that has been affected by your business mm -hmm. and then you pay for it. It would transform overnight our planet. Mm -hmm because the way we are going is towards carbon taxation, mm -hmm. but because we have this pathetic, and I would say it again, pathetic belief in business's ability to police itself, it's about as plausible as newspapers' ability to police their own moral compass. We need to, as citizens, as opposed to consumers, but as citizens, insist on the good behavior uh, on things that are common such as water, soil, and so on, uh, air, it would transform everything. There is no aspect of life that would not be transformed. And that'd be the very first thing I did. This is a very difficult area for me personally, because while I understand um, the good work that has gone uh, into the evaluation of, uh, 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 of natural capital, which is what you're alluding to, uh, and therefore you uh, get rewarded for doing activities which lead to goods, if you like. Um, it's a useful tool for dullards. Mm -hmm. The truth is, the truth is, what you're actually saying is, please can I do a whole lot of shit and then buy my way out of jail by planting some trees or something like that. And that is not really a very good way to go ahead because actually nobody knows really what their own carbon footprint uh, means in terms of um, uh, defraying it. Do you uh, think we're working towards that though? I think we're working towards, I think we're working towards there. Um, if I told you the honest truth, I think that what is coming yeah. towards us is so big, so extraordinarily life-changing mm. and in britain there's not even a discussion about it there's well, no there's no discussion about what is actually happening the we didn't see the coming of the compact disc the c the cd uh, uh, the dvd the video the computer in the home the smartphone we didn't see it you can't even find a banker today that says they didn't see 2008 coming they're all like people who went to a garden party and stood at a fringe eating a cucumber sandwich. By six months after they left, they will tell you about the long conversation they had with the Queen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Britain, Britain as a nation has fantastically betrayed its birthright. We used to be the number one country in the world for horticulture and agronomy. Mm. Now you can find no good horticultural colleges in this country. Horticulture and agriculture are regarded as uh, professions that will be taken up either by those who have inherited a lot of money or those who've got no other prospects. In the country in which I was born, in Holland, if you are an agronomist, you are a professional person and will be paid as much and you are more highly respected than a lawyer or an accountant. That's what's happened in this country. And the greatest horror I have is when I survey and I travel an awful lot. If you go to California right now, um, the three fastest companies, growing companies in the world are in Celtech, yeah. cellulose technology, artificial cellulose. Mm. They last year turned over 1.7 billion. They're anticipating this year they will treble that. Who has become very, very interested in Celtech? China. Mm. 
Why is China interested? Because its burgeoning middle classes want to eat meat. Their land is now so much overrun by livestock growing because mm -hmm. all of their good agricultural land has been built over. Yeah. They're going into Celtech. I would, I, would guess, yeah. I would guess within three years, big agriculture, as you know it, as I know it, is going to be on its knees and no one is talking about it. The big cattle lots of central uh, uh, USA will go, Brazil, Argentina, and then Celtech will start to take over. You've seen what's happened with Facebook. You've seen what's happened with all of these companies with great, great brands. I'll do no evil. But what they do is they're swallowing power, 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 power. And Celtech um, is producing already in fermentation vats dairy uh, proteins at 30% of the cost of dairy itself. This is happening now. And we've got a conversation in this country. It's so sweet. You talk to civil servants and they'll talk about the post-Brexit settlement. And, you know, people like me go strolling around uh, in, in, with other clothes on talking about isn't that great we're going to talk about regenerative farming we're going to talk about a bit of rewilding we're going to do biomass enhancement we're going to do biodiversity enhancement mm -hmm. and carbon sequestration and i'm thinking to myself what you're looking for is a war there's a war coming to do with our country not recognizing this technology is coming at this speed and farming as we know it is going to be really taking a huge hit so in fact you're going to be rewilding millions of acres of Britain by accident. I'm being deliberately provocative because I am actually really optimistic, but, I, but for us to have this conversation, I need to use the shock tactics of how I think it's gonna be. I actually think there's a really optimistic outcome because you've now got to throw into that thing. Not everybody's gonna to wanna to eat clean meat. In fact, when I talk to an awful lot of vegetarians, uh, they don't actually want to just, uh, uh, they don't want to not, not eat meat. They're just not prepared to eat meat that has been industrially produced. A lot, a lot of them. I mean, and, and I, I've got one child who is that way inclined, another who um, regards any notion of meat as being um, horrible. But um, the way, the other thing you've got to put in, factor into this is we've all signed up, our governments have signed up to, um, a fossil fuel free economy from 2050 uh, by probably by the end of this year world governments are going to go uh, faster than that i mean it's a joke when you get a guy like boris johnson starting off by saying that we'll phase out diesel by 2040 and now oh well maybe we'll look at 2030 i read i reckon by the year 2023 there will be no big factories anywhere in the world producing combustion engines it, it's just it's just typical slow the speed of adopt, adapt, uh, adoption of new technology is so much faster than those who rule us understand yeah Ele electric electric vehicles are going to be everywhere very very soon in norway they're already outstripping normal uh, vehicles battery technology is making them uh, actually feel like a safe uh, technology for people to buy they don't feel they're going to get stranded but the impact of, of that right is is um they've only got like 13 moving parts so garages are not going to have much trade are they because cars aren't going to bump into each other they're not going to need paint jobs they're not going to need parts and also they'd be a lot better driven than by us because they many of them would be automatically driven yes. so what you so what you're going to see is the cities of the world are going to be transformed within 10 years in China, where we're working, President Xi is putting billions, absolutely billions, into the reimagining of their existing cities to turn them back into sec into uh, what do you call it, segway villages. Mm -hmm. And you're going to see that in London. You're going to see it in Birmingham. You're going to see it everywhere. There's going to be huge new careers in terms of reimagining what a city looks like. And if I had a lot of money and I was interested in money, I would be buying properties along Hanger Lane and all those places in London because the, the roads are going to be quiet. You're going to be able to tear up the tarmac. You're going to be able to have gardens. Your birds will return. The best book I have ever read is called Pandemonium by Humphrey Jennings. Okay. Uh, and Humphrey Jennings was a propaganda filmmaker, a fantastic propaganda filmmaker in 
the Second World War. He was also a friend of Salvador Dali. Um, and he was kind of like an Evelyn War character. Mm-hmm. And, and he set himself the target of writing a history of the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution. And as he started it, he realized that he was going to write a whole heap of nonsense. Because, of course, when you look back, if all of us were forced to do this, I'm I'm just making this up, but you'd start with, say, Isaac Newton, and we'd say, oh, and Isaac Newton, you know, he came up with the notion of gravity and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. When you you go into pandemonium, because he's chosen to write the book from the perspective of those who lived then writing about themselves then, and it's blisteringly good. I mean, Isaac Newton, yeah, he was quite impressed with having thought of gravity, but that was, as far as he was concerned, it wasn't. It wasn't the end game. It was a way of understanding the world. Uh, in what is sound? Is it something inherent in something or is it between, friction between things? He was absolutely riveted by what created bioluminescence in the wing shells of beetles. Um, anyway. As you read this book from the start, you suddenly realize you're learning about a a civilization, us, Mm -hmm. learning to think in a new way, in a taxonomic way, building things up, you know, looking at hundreds of rocks and looking at their similarities and organizing them. What can we learn? It's very exciting. And you know who else found it exciting? Um, Danny Boyle. Danny Boyle was given that book and he based that book uh, it was the inspiration for the opening ceremony of the Olympics. Um, and in the start, if you ever get a chance to read this book, team, uh, in the introduction, which is the best introduction to any book I've ever read, there's this sequence where he talks about, he starts by talking about poetry. And he says, up until about 1700, po- poets could write about anything. They were able, you know, Homer and, and so on, uh, uh, going right up to Alexander Pope, you could talk about Uh, All human life you could talk about. But in the 1750s, it all started to change. Writers started to colonize what you could write about. And people became specialists to the the point that, you know, towards the early 1800s, poets were really only able to talk about their own emotional internal life. And that was it. Now, let's go to 1834. Something terrible happened in 1834. The word science was coined. Up until then, it was natural philosophy, which was kind of a love child with culture and observed enlightenment taxonomy thrown in. Uh, Darwin would have called himself a natural philosopher, so would Newton, so would Lyle and Huxley and all of those greats. But from 1834, something weird happened. People started to colonize knowledge. First of all, you had biology, zoology, geology that all the ologies and isms started to build up and then you got subsets of those and no one could talk about any of them no one could talk about the generic look at our culture today if someone is a general scientist writing about it they're immediately amongst their fellows regarded as just a little bit outside the pale so and you know national natural uh, philosophy died what is now happening in all the universities that i know and we work with lots of them all these people are going through this terrible sense of bereavement that maybe this horrible accident has been made that we now know about the outside wing flap of a fruit fly, but very few people have got a sense of the largeness of these marvelous systems. The 1960s was the heyday of of systems theory. It then died out because the computer hadn't come across and given us all that strength. We are going to go back to now realize that what you've got to learn from nature is everything absolutely everything because we're all connected everything is connected and therefore to try and solve problems by looking at one isolated thing let's call it carbon is just to maintain the errors of the past everybody now talks about um, uh, multidisciplinary that's basically uh, what that says is we universities don't want to use our power but we will work together with you Uh, meaning that we still get our grants and still don't do as much as we should. The new cool word is is gone to transdisciplinary and I can't wait for it to be post-disciplinary because the great insights that we need for our generation are going to be about systems. I spent 
a week walking around Iceland last August with a guy called Jack Hiddery, who's the creative director of um, Google Alphabet. And he's the guy who bought DeepMind, which is the big AI mm-hmm. organization that came out of, out of, out of Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, and he told me something really interesting. He said, Google for 19 years followed the greatest cul-de-sac in intellectual history, which was the belief that the binary algorithm coding was going to save the world. It was going to give us everything. Mm. Suddenly, they started to realize that there was something missing. Do you know who they're now paying a lot of money to? Who they're poaching from every university they can get the top people? Ecologists. 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 They realized, they suddenly realized that you've got to understand systems and neural networks because we're creatures. Look at the Mm. remarkable, remarkable... um, the human body which is a a, a terrific metaphor for all the rest of it it is such a blissful stunning system yeah it's stunning and you know what google did that is really really interesting um with deep mind they decided they were going to start looking at medicine for the first time all over again Mm. so they start they thought let's go for something big you know what they went for cancer let's study cancer because i wonder how much of our knowledge about cancer has been so divided by people who were lymph cancer experts, colon cancer experts, prostate experts, all the rest of it, yeah? And they thought they'd start with birth. And I went to this this lecture in August, uh, which was my jaw and a lot of other scientists was hitting the floor. They were saying, we looked at birth and we looked at the the whole act of um, gestation And there was one thing that really puzzles us that no one had written about, which is that when you look at the layers, and for those of you who are scientists on this call, I'm about to be a bit dull because I'm not a scientist, but the layers that form up, that that protect the embryo in the the womb, on the side of the womb, uh, I think there's six or seven layers, and they are are, interlaced, but the DNA, right? The thing the human body hates most is the DNA of something else. Therefore, yeah. the, em- the embryo is under terrible threat. So how clever is it and how amazing is it that no one had spotted this until last year, that the layer of, of, of cut- is it cut- cutaneous material? Be- beneath, the layer beneath the one that is against the, the, the blood system is predominantly that of the male, huge majority of the male. And they discovered by slow-mo photography that what actually happens in birth is that when the waters break or are artificially caused to break, as the skin rips, the DNA of that secondary skin just is so visible to the antibodies of the woman, the the woman goes into spasm. And that that is the movement that ejects the child. And... Well, it's amazing. It is amazing that we didn't know that. Um, but where, where Google are going, don't get me, I'm not about to announce something utterly stunning, but where Google are going with that is that with that knowledge that nature was so clever in a simple way to create the natural triggers of stuff, they're now looking at cancer cells in a completely new way yeah. about how the cells camouflage themselves from the antibodies of the host. Yeah. Um, and the thinking about it is absolutely riveting. I, I, you know, I could have listened for days to these people talking. Um, but, it's fascinating, uh, isn't it? But we're and living at such an exciting time. I was going to, um, thinking about donuts, uh, I was going to ask you about Kate Greywood and her thinking about donut economics. Um, yep. uh, the rationale behind that, I wonder whether we could just touch on, because a couple of people are asking sort of, you know who's thinking? Uh, who are who are who are thinking big? Who are the big thinkers? And who are the fast thinkers? Um, I wonder if, if if that might be a name that uh, you would throw into that particular ring. Well, um, I I have to admit that that Kate, uh, uh, Kate and and Roman, her husband, are, are good chums of mine. Okay. Uh, so I'm never going to say anything bad about Kate. She's a really smart woman. Um, uh, uh, actually, that's a bit sexy. She's a bloody smart person. Um, and her influence is everywhere at the moment. Um, and I think she's, uh, she's, I think she herself feels slightly uncomfortable 
um, with not with the attention, but it's actually uh, it's like a theory that needs to continuously evolve. Mm -hmm. And that she's got she's got a great project in um, uh, in Amsterdam where, 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 where the Dutch t are taking her very, very seriously. Yeah, it, it, it's really interesting because Kate and uh, uh, um, I'm becoming a bit ancient here. There are two books by two uh, two um, female uh, economists. One is uh, Mariana Mazzucato's book, um, mm. uh, uh, which is absolutely stunning, uh, stunning, um, because it's all about moral compass in business, the sort of thing you're yeah. talking about. But how actually success in success as a civilization depends on us discovering that. Yeah. And the other is by Stephanie. It's called the um, the deficit myth. Again, it's ah, a bonk. Yeah. It's a bonkers book for putting cold mountain streams through your head. Yeah, she, she's basically saying that we have all allowed ourselves to be. I'm going to get killed here by an economist. Her basic. Turnet is that we are like children, us on this screen, we're like children. We believe that government finance is the same as our household uh, economy. And therefore, if you're going to spend, say, 52 billion pounds on HS2 or whatever, um, there's going to be this big trunk that you lift up and you take the ingots out and you spend the ingots and it's gone. We've not got that. And her book is about this extraordinary lie that we've told ourselves um, that she says the only risk is inflation, but that a government, a great government, should not worry about a deficit. The problem with the deficit is that we've all believed that it's to do with household economics. Anyway, if you want, if you want to give yourselves a feast of um, arguing with yourself, beating yourself up, saying this cannot be true for heaven forfend, Get a look at that book because it will make you smile, and at the, the very worst, it will stimulate you, and at the best, it will make you dream. Because actually, if she's right, what it's telling us is that those we've elected into power for all of these years could, could have built us a brilliant education system and paid for it, and done all sorts of other good things, which would stop this enormous gap between us, which is so unhealthy for our. But to be honest, for our self-image as well as it is for the victims themselves. Um, mm. But I would, I thoroughly recommend that. that, that, that I long, long. I also, yeah. on this, on this non-sexist um, uh, gender conversation, it's really interesting that the probably the five best-run countries on in the world are currently led by women. I just thought I'd mention it. I think. Uh, don't get me wrong. I think Kate, Kate's work is really, really important, and I think the 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 for, for me, in terms of its influence on me, is understanding that one of the key issues that we need to address, going right back to your very first question, right, the cycle of this conversation, is that the future, in my view, is to do with the reimagining of what we mean by the word local, mm. because the word local has come to mean parochial as opposed to muscular and completely resilient. Mm. So if you look at what, what's happening behind the scenes in Britain right now, there's a, there's a public debate about energy and all of this stuff. Uh, and then there is the under the radar conversations about micronuclear. There's a lot of micronuclear work going on. Um, there's a lot of solar work. Oh, so as in nuclear power? Yeah, every house yeah. powered by its own yeah. little nuclear power plant. Yeah. Um, that, that's kind of led by Rolls-Royce's work on submar atomic submarines. Mm -hmm. um, uh, 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 not to, I'm not trying to land um, Rolls in a particular problem. It's a, quite an interesting discourse because, of course, one of the greatest pleasures for an environmentalist who likes annoying people, which is me, mm -hmm. um, I love going to make speeches and everybody wants to please daddy. So you arrive in the lecture hall and you say, who here is anti-nuclear? And everybody dutifully puts their hand up. Yeah. And then you ask people why, and then you see the white parchment color appear on everybody's faces as they realize they are not wearing the clothes of knowledge, they're wearing the clothes of their own prejudice. And then you yeah. say, um, so what, what is it about nuclear you don't like, blah, 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 you know, you can imagine it. And you say, is it mushroom clouds? Is it um, um, the fact some very cool people were in the campaign for nuclear disarmament? Mm. And, or is it that waste can't be stored safely? But underneath all of that are some really interesting things. 
yeah. the waste can't be can't be stored easily argument is actually could be reinterpreted as we don't trust our kids or their kids to keep us safe therefore we'd rather not leave them the risk that you could say that and the nuclear power industry cannot believe how generous the environmentalists have been because we never asked the right question you see we always said nuclear is bad they then said to government you tell us to not do nuclear you can tell them that the lights are going off so of course government never did what we should have said was, why on earth have you chosen that type of nuclear? In that sort of scale. Yeah. Well, why? Why? Yeah. And the truth is that if they'd gone down a route of thorium or wherever, where, where you don't have the same storage problems and you don't have the same um, uh, uh, exponential heat growth for something falling down, it would have been fine. Mm. Solar, of course, is terrific. Now, you look at Cornwall. You look at where I'm living right here. We could be food independent. We could be completely energy independent. We could pretty much, we were prepared to pay for it, be mineral independent. But we're such a centralist state, Britain, that we don't encourage it. You know, the energy that's produced just over the hill from here, I can't see it because it's dark, right? They can't get it into the grid because the grid was only meant to be delivering from the center out. It wasn't actually set up to accept it from the outside uh, coming back in. Is that thermal or is it, or is it electric? Oh, that's wind just out that's here. Wind, wind yeah, but, but there's huge amounts of solar. So what's going to happen is we're all going to start wanting to have it locally because we can't get it into the central grid. And all I'm saying is cities are not going to be like cities you know now. Uh, but it all goes back to your original question about is in this post-pandemic period, what is going to happen psychologically to us? Are we going to go back to the old normal uh, or are we going to be different? And I would argue that we're going to be fundamentally different. I think what's been happening, not only here, but in every other country that we work in, it's a funny word to use, and in Britain it feels awkward. There has been a spiritual element to all of this, which is not to do with a particular religion, but it's been to do with waking up to the fact of the, the, some of these interdependencies. Even if you don't know the science, you understand that why is it important to me? I don't know why, but it is. Yeah. And, and the survey I quoted you earlier, it's telling you something incredibly powerful that these 40 odd thousand people think that nature is the most important thing in the world yeah. and that is new that is really new it's just yeah. like a yeah. um I, I'm, I'm delighted with that it was absolutely brilliant um what can you grow those vertically um in, can we can we grow vertically yeah. Yeah, we can. The problems are ladders. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> you, you can grow vertically, but one of the problems with a lot of vertical growing um, is that architects love it because it looks great. Horticulturalists hate it because, in fact, the range of plants you can grow in that system is actually quite narrow. Um, what's actually much cooler is a series um, of solar powered uh, Imagine you've got long uh, uh, horticultural benches. Yeah. Are you with me, everybody? Um, but they're on a kind of a, a lever system. So they're go all going around like uh, horizontal clocks. So they're all getting a little bit of sunlight when they need them. Because what they, uh, one of the really interesting things we, we've learned in this last year is that plants don't need all that light. They get pretty bored. They kept awake all the time. They, they just need to eat, eat sunlight when they want it. Um, it's the same map with water. If you put water filaments uh, uh, under a bed and the roots of the plant touch it, the, root, the plant learns to just give a bit of a wobble when it wants some water. And they only need about, uh, they, they need about 90% um, less than we keep giving them. Mm. They're very, very cool creatures, plants. The trouble is they can't sing and dance, which makes it difficult because no one actually takes them seriously. You know, cuddly duck, ah, much better, much more interesting than a plant. But I don't know, have you read, has everybody here read um, uh, Tangled Life, Entangled Life? By um, um, no, oh come on, team! It's no. Oh yeah, there you go. Um, it, it's by um, Merlin Sheldrake. Uh, Merlin Sheldrake, and, and it's just, it's just thrilling. I mean, what we've discovered over the last three or four years about mycorrhizae, you know, the fungi in, in mm -hmm. the soil systems, um, and how akin they are to the biology inside our own stomachs and things. Is, is again, going back to that spiritual thing, we're all just life. That's all it is, it's life. It's just brilliant. 
it's a feast. I've been working with a guy called Howard Dryden, uh, who has a company in Scotland called Dryden Aqua. Uh, and he is one of the most extraordinary men I've ever met. He recycles 37% exactly of all Scotland's glass. And he, he creates water filtration systems because he's, he's a very spiritual guy and he gives most of his money away and goes to Bangladesh to build filtration systems to stop people suffering from arsenic poisoning. Um, and he he talks about the simple technologies that you can bring to bear uh, to cure uh, cure these sort of systems situations, mm. and uh, he's the guy doing our water system. And he said to me, he said you do realize that 1.1 million visitors a year divided by 365 divided by 24 hours a day is about the consumption level of a town of 10,000 people. So he said if you could make Eden completely a completely circular ecology uh in some right you will have built an example if you would ensure that you are a shop window where the intellectual property you give to the world it would mean that you could have a monster effect on every town in the world like that in, in your particular climate zone so in our foreign projects we've got 17 around around the world uh we just want to create a kind of almost a Linux system for technology to make living in nature. Interesting. I, I've become so excited as an old fart. I read a book last year. I, I was at Portland Airport in Portland, Oregon, and on the book stand were two books which I bought. I couldn't help myself. One was The History of the Wright Brothers, which is just great. And then the other was called Bold by a chap called Peter Diamandis, who you may have heard of because he came up with the idea with Ray Kurzweil of the Singularity University. Mm -hmm. And he also started the X Prize. And Bold was a book about how entrepreneurial attitudes will change the world. And it's a jolly good read anyway. It's a, a great pot boiler book. Yeah. But at the end, at the end of it, there were two, bit, two bits in it which made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. The first was, he said, um, he talks about Galaxy Zoo, something I'd never heard about. Um, and it was this chap who started a blog, which began with the a par parody of the opening words of A Tale of Two Cities. You know, it, I have the best of jobs, the worst of jobs. And the best of jobs was that Hubble had just given him the job of identifying all the galaxies that have been picked up by the photographs from the Hubble telescope. And he said, the worst of jobs, because it's gonna take me 2000 years. Um, well, get this. Three months in, he had quarter of a million volunteers. Yeah. People all over the world creating kind of hive brain. And they've, they've taken space study just by the throat and just taken it. How exciting is that? Yeah. If you think of all the people in houses all over the world who've got brilliant brain, look at the people on this call, you know, uh, what they could contribute to the world if there was a mechanism for bringing those insights to, into play. So I'm... I'm fascinated by how, how if you can rob yourself of the greatest uh, break, the greatest break is male vanity in all of this. I can feel it in myself. I mean, I'm obviously I'm vain to point, but I realize how much all of us chaps, especially chaps, are vain. Therefore, someone else's idea, I didn't invent it, so I'm not going to work fully on it. So how can you, how can you create a culture in which um, the joy is in the gift and you give it and I'd like the next part of my life I want to see my next part of my life could actually only last for like 20 minutes if I'm, if I'm unlucky but I, I want to see whether I can I can hand over that notion of an Eden and places like Eden as being places where people of good heart bring great thoughts to applied end end results one of, one of the interesting things uh, I don't have the comfort of religion but um I obviously read the book of Genesis out of curiosity. I, I, was, I was wondering whether God, I was, I was wondering whether God had some tips, you know, um, but, but no, joking, joking apart, one of the things that, that, that really strikes you is the translation. Um, and I know there's been quite a lot of uh, a conversation and argument about the translation of the Bible, but uh, one of the things that is pretty darn short, certain is that, the book of Genesis is the only book in the Bible uh, uh, and indeed in the Talmud, uh, which is written by hunter-gatherers. It's not written by settled agrarians. It could only be hunter-gatherers that could 
uh, have ascribed a fate of tilling the land as being the worst fate yeah. imaginable. Absolutely. Um, yeah. and, and I mean, for me, the conceit of calling Eden Eden only came out of, uh, I, was, I was actually thinking a bit laterally about uh, being thrown out of paradise because you ate fruit from the tree of knowledge. Um, maybe there was a splendid irony that the only way you could get back to paradise was eating an awful lot more of it. Um, because uh, there, is, there is something very weird about the book of Genesis, uh, because in it, in it, it uses the word dominion. And it's that word dominion which has so crucified human life on earth in terms of the way we look at nature and put it to our, to our, our hand. Yeah, we kill off everything that competes for food with us. We we don't let live and let live, live and let live. And it's um, it's amazing because the last book I would recommend tonight would be a book um, called Ish Ishmael, which is I think the weirdest book I've ever read, mm -hmm. by an American philosopher called Daniel Quinn, and the premise is that a guy in New York answers an advertisement in the New York Daily News for a teacher wants to give his one last great lesson um, on the meaning of life. And this 40 year old guy goes along to meet the teacher because he really wants to be the person that's chosen and is astonished to find that the teacher is a talking gorilla. And then the, the chapter unfolds to make it actually ridiculously plausible as to why the gorilla is a talking gorilla in the first place. But the gorilla takes this man on a journey and says, I will teach you only if you can answer me this question. And the question is, what is the myth by which all humans live? And the guy goes away and he come back, comes back after four weeks and he says, um, there is no myth. I'm sorry, I've, I've, I've looked in every encyclopedia. Blah, 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 blah. And the gorilla says, you are obviously very stupid. I don't want to teach you. Whereupon the man decides now is the time to pull the I'm going to have a flood of tears moment. And the gorilla has sympathy and he says, all right, I'll tell you a story. He says, we will go back three billion years. We are walking on the hot, uh, the hot rocks beside a newly formed ocean. And in a rock pool, we see a slime. And we say, hello, Mr. Slime. And Mr. Slime says, hello. Tell us your story, Mr. Slime. He goes, well, 14 billion years ago, the world was formed and, um, and here I am. And it's marvelous. And the guy goes to the grill, he says, what are you talking about? That's not a clue. And he said, that's all you're getting. Anyway, two weeks later, the man comes back and he says to the gorilla, I've got it. I've got it. You're so right. The myth by which all humans live is that we were meant to be the end point of the development of the evolution of life. And the gorilla says, I think maybe you are bright enough to be taught. And then the book starts. It's great, a great book. Thank you very much. Well, thank yeah. you. It's, it's been a delight. It's been a delight. And, and can I just thank all of you for bothering to turn up? It makes me feel not so lonely. It's really, really great. <laughs> I've enjoyed it. And it's, oh. I, I've been able to tell by the, the eyes that I've been able to see that it's been a very agreeable evening. So thank you.